Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is JP LeBreton. Um, JP is a very experienced game designer. He worked uh, he worked at Irrational on Bioshock and 2K Marine on Bioshock 2, um, along with very various other projects. He was at Double Fine for, for a few years, and he's now working uh, alone as an independent developer making uh, autobiographical architecture, which he he's builds in the, the Doom engine. Well, not exactly the Doom engine. There's some kind of um, modern version of it incorporating modern design elements, um, which I genuinely don't really know anything about. Like this is one of those things where you know, as somebody who doesn't make games myself, I'm purely a fan of games. Sometimes when I speak to a guest, you know, they get really excited about about tech and and programming and things that that genuinely I have no idea about. But I I know people uh, listen to the show that that do and they really enjoy that, and I just enjoy it because I like, you know, I like I like people being enthusiastic about things. I think that's probably my favorite thing in the whole world is knowledgeable smart people being enthusiastic about the things they're knowledgeable and smart about uh, so this chat with with jp is is a wonderful example of that um and also just the the kind of it's a very frank discussion as well which i think is is important because this is probably i i, I think i do say this to him in the show as well like his experience of of working in video games uh, joining the circus uh, as he says uh, it is you know there's some really tough moments in it, some really difficult times, uh, and I'm sure his his experience is much more common than well I, I mean based on you know things I read online and stuff it is it is the norm almost that you know sometimes these sort of huge large scale projects can can become very difficult and it's hard to kind of keep keep your your life in balance so purely for how kind of frank and honest he was about some of those difficulties and and still how 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 much he still loves video games and is inspired by them and, and sees sees great unexplored potential um, within them. Uh, it's, it's a really good chat. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also at checkpointshow on Twitter and forward slash checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, you can also tweet about the show and tell people how much you enjoy it and uh, get new listeners to the show. That is always very much appreciated. Um, and genuinely do get in touch. I'm actually going to put out a, a genuine call here to any developers that are, are just starting out or, you know, just finishing their first game or just starting their first game. Um, like, th- this is a show about video games, so I, and I want people to listen to it. So if I do speak to developers, which I do quite a lot, I tend to try and go for um, people that are kind of quite established, that, that have a, a, a reputation already so that people will then hopefully want to listen to the games that that inspired them you know but i think it's just as interesting to speak to people just starting out who perhaps don't have that that name recognition yet and i'm hoping that i've got a, a big enough audience now that they'll, they'll kind of trust my my judgment when it comes to to guess and i'd really like to speak to people so if you are that person if you are just starting out if you're young and happy and enthusiastic and you haven't been ground down by the system yet um or even if you have uh, please do get in touch um i would 
I would love to hear from you. Um, also, uh, a weekly plug for the, the Patreon. I haven't had any new subscribers last week. That's fine. As I said, I've covered my costs. But if you do enjoy the show and, and you have the money to spare, uh, it's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. And uh, everyone has already um, patronized the show. I am hugely grateful. And I appreciate your support. Have you played Thumper yet? Oh my god, Thumper is amazing. Um, I interviewed Mark Flurry, who was one of the creators of, of Thumper earlier in the year. And if you listen to the show then, if you listen to that episode, you'll you'll know how excited I was and how much of a fan of, of rhythm action uh, I am. And oh man, it does not disappoint. Uh, I've yet to have uh, a go with it in VR. I've yet to have a go on VR, like full stop, if you can believe that. If any Sony executives listen to the show and would like to send me a, a PSVR kit, please do. Or, you know, you can support my Patreon. Help me help me save those those pennies. I don't, I don't like asking for money, so I'm going to stop here. Um, but, but, you know, I talk about it. <laughs> okay, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Let's get on with the show. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's, for the sake of the show, let's do a, a, a formal introduction. So, JP, welcome to Checkpoints. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, hi, I'm JP, and I'm an independent, currently solo game developer. Uh, my current project is called Autobiographical Architecture. I guess in the past, I've worked at Human Head Studios, Blue Fang Games, Irrational Games, 2K Marin, uh, and most recently Double Fine. And yeah. And the um, autobiographical architecture, that's in the, the Doom engine, right? Yes, it's a mod for Doom. And was that kind of um, a, a purposeful choice because you can literally do that on your own? You know, you don't need to bring on artists and, and, and other kind of people you can yeah, that just was make it, part of it on your, your, yourself yeah it was this confluence of i have a deep weird connection to doom going back to you know when it when it first came out and it is the kind of engine and just system in which one developer can be fairly productive within within its fidelity and idiom uh yeah, and, then, and I suppose like, it fits also, quite tonally yeah. as well because it has this because it is autobiographical, and so you know you have this this game that you love that you're repurposing to kind of tell your own story, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's amazing. Have you seen like this is uh, this sounds like I'm trivializing your project, and I'm absolutely not. But um, <laughs> you're you're, at, you're you're almost certainly familiar with this. I only just saw it yesterday. The the Tim Allen mod for Doom is it? It is Doom, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Where every yeah, yeah. texture and every sound has been replaced by Tim Allen. Um, it's uh-huh. it's yep. genuinely nightmarish. Like it's it's horrific. It is. Yeah, I downloaded that and and took it apart to see like it's you know the, I first saw the screenshot or video of it and I was like I'm pretty sure how they how they made how they made this and it's like oh yeah yeah that's that's pretty straightforward actually. And so has it been like like you said you you just you wanted to unpack that other mod so has has working so extensively with with the Doom engine? Have, has it revealed any surprises? Because this is clearly a game that sort of meant quite a lot to you. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the the technology that I'm working with, um, it's a version of the Doom engine called GZ Doom, um, which actually has a lot of modern bells and whistles added to it. Like it's rendered with 3D hardware, you know. So it's 
Um, and just recently, they've added a bunch of new features to it, like things like portals, like true, you know, n portals that let you do things like non-Euclidean space and, uh, you know, I, I for sorry, that's a super jargony term, I guess, but just like, um, <laughs> I know, you know what like, you mean. The, like like the TARDIS effect sort of stuff where, you know, there's a doorway into something that doesn't, that looks like, that suggests an impossible space or something. Was that you know, you how they first that. built Portal? But what was the, the version of Portal that Valve bought? The, it was like a student game, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a student game that, where they just used, I mean, the only thing that it really has in common is maybe a rendering technique and, and maybe not even that. I, oh, mean, it's I, a I thought that was in the Doom engine, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, the original student game was called Nerbacular Drop. That's the one, yeah. That, that might have been a custom engine. Because um, <clears throat> once upon a time, that, that sort of portal-y stuff was actually fairly hard to do. Um, the original 3D Realms version of, of, of Prey that was in development in the late 90s uh, had a renderer that supported... And, and actually, the Duke Nukem 3D had a renderer that supported portal tricks. Doom and Dark Forces and a few others didn't. But I don't know. Yeah, that's another thing that I geek out about. I mean, nowadays, engines are like these Microsoft Office-sized like industrial design products uh whereas you know back in the 90s engines were something that a few people could a few, with the right expertise could bang together and so they sort of almost felt like um i don't know i mean in some ways they felt kind of like the first airplanes you know okay <laughs> Where it was just like you know a couple of guys in a bicycle shop uh who knew how who knew how motors worked because uh, i think that you know they were sort of getting to grips for the first time with a lot of the constraints and parameters and trade-offs for how engines were how games were put how engines and thus how games were put together yeah um and those and are a lot of the first sort of 3d worlds as well like that i mean that literally the first sort of 3d engines right absolutely yeah yeah so it was also making possible something that was just heretofore really sort of the stuff of dreams uh so i think you know it's also kind of it you know it's got that sort of magical aura associated with it absolutely yeah well well let's let's go back then jp so sure. um if you can remember, what was your, your very first experience of a video game? I, I can remember, in fact. It's one of my... I think a lot of my earliest memories as a human being are dreams that I had and video games. Um, I, the first time I can remember... My, my dad is a sports writer. And he was, always a little, he was always kind of ahead of the curve technologically at his paper. And so he brought home one day when I was, I guess I would have been three or four years old, um, brought home a Commodore 64 uh, with, a, with a, an analog modem for, so that he could type his stories and then send them into the paper downtown without, you know, from the comfort of his home office. I didn't even know you could get a modem for the Commodore 64. That's, that's blowing oh, yeah. my mind right yeah, away. Yeah. yeah, there were bulletin boards and all that kind of stuff. I, I, he, I never got to use modems and stuff like that uh you know as because I, I was just a little kid but um but yeah it was it was one of those acoustic coupler modems where you okay plug, yeah we put the uh, phone on the the little dial not the dial why what, what yeah, would you call you, it a little cradle yeah you put it in a cradle with like sort of rubber uh things i i barely remember anything about that setup because i think he quickly you know uh, upgraded and stuff like that and eventually uh later i got um uh later i got you know, I, I got hand-me-downs. I got that when he moved on to uh, a DOS PC, I got the Commodore 64. And when he upgraded to a 386, I got his, you know, first generation. I guess it was a PCXT. Anyway, um, so the very first thing that I can remember, I don't know if it was the day that he brought home that Commodore 64 or, you know, at some point after. Um, but 
there was a there was a line of educational software cartridges. You know, Commodore sixty four had games on disc, but also games on cartridges. And there was a line of educational sort of games where you could do you know letters and colors and numbers and word spelling words and stuff like that called uh, uh, from a from a software house called Spinnaker Software. And so one day uh, we had a, a cartridge called KinderComp. Uh, which I guess was a play on kindergarten. And we put that in and, you know, it has, it's just like, it's incredibly, I think there might be footage of it on YouTube nowadays. It's incredibly primitive by even, you know, even by later Commodore 64 standards. Yeah. But it's basically just this little thing that, uh, you know, puts sounds and colors on the screen and you can name, I think you can count things and name colors and spell words. And it also had like a freeform kind of paint program sort of thing that I believe was implemented in, in uh, Commodore 64 character mode where you could just like, you know, all the little tiles that the regular dot basic prompt that you could type things into, you know, it was just using those characters, but you could change the colors and stuff like that. So I played around with that a bit that first day. And then it was time for dinner. And I left the computer on, you know, in dad's office. Uh-huh. And... Um, I came back from dinner and the sun had gone down or it was kind of dusky in the room, I think. Um, and the monitor was still on and the computer was doing something in retrospect. What it was clearly doing was like some sort of attract mode, you know, where you just leave it at the menu screen for, for a minute or so. And then it just starts going into a little demo mode. Uh, and the demo mode was, it was particularly inscrutable as I remember it because it was just like drawing random. It was, it was sort of like freestyling in the thing's paint mode, but I had so little literacy for how computers worked, what they did, what they were capable of and what, how humans instructed computers to do things that, um, it just seemed like, it just seemed like magic, you know. It seemed like there was this ghost haunting this machine, yeah, you know. And I imagine you running out of the house screaming like it's it's yeah. become self-aware. <laughs> well, it wasn't scary. It was typing your just... name on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't scary. It was more just enthralling because um, I don't think I attributed it to like a supernatural thing specifically, but it was just sort of like something magical is happening that I don't understand, and it's coming from the machine. Um, <laughs> And it was specifically, I don't know, like I, I, I was thinking about like in the lead up to, to, to on this podcast, I was sort of thinking about that experience and like trying to remember any more details. But I think it was like the room was sort of dim and twilighty and the lights were off in the room. And, you know, the monitor, you know, that old Commodore 64 monitor was just pumping out those bold, bright colors. And I, I think that actually crept into the aesthetic of uh, Petsky, the, uh, sorry, Playsky, the, um, the, the, the art and game creation tool that I made last year. Um, because, yeah, like that, that sort of like bleed of the phosphors, I don't know, it, like it's weird because I made that as a tool and so there's only so many romantic notions you can pack into a tool. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, I don't know, I think that that very first experience, so I think really from that point, <laughs> from that very first day it feels like, um, I felt like computers could have mysteries inside of them. And I mean, I, you know, I learned soon enough that like, well, yeah, it's humans who put the mysteries there, but that doesn't make them any less interesting. Um, and yeah, so really from there, it was just sort of, you know, I don't know, it was, but I, I, but what was I that I, like, what did that instill in you? What was it a sense of 
um like that you could kind of go two ways from that it's like i need to figure out everything about how that worked or you yeah, could just be yeah. like oh computers are amazing they're, they're more amazing than i could even contemplate i'm not even going to begin to try and understand that but clearly you went the the former way and just sort of dove in I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't. Uh, I did do a little bit of late years later. I did do a little bit of basic programming on it. Um, so it's almost like I didn't. I, I did want to understand it. I didn't just you know write it off as like this unknowable thing. Obviously, but um, but there was always. Uh, I didn't learn to. You know, a lot of other people I've talked to who learned to program from a very early point. They kind of hit that point of demystification much earlier you know yeah. they start programming within a few years or something and, and i didn't i mean I, I didn't really have access to like i didn't i knew that you could program and i kind of understood how like there were some type in programs in the back of 321 contact magazine and things like that uh and so i i did that stuff but i didn't i don't know i i i was so my path became that more of, a, of an artist i guess you know yeah. i mean like level designer specifically is how i got into the industry and it wasn't really until my 20s that i started learning how to program and like chipping away at those last few levels of mystification um i don't want to attribute too much uh you know uh i don't want to say spiritual but like it too much uh, subjective significance to that process of mystification or demystification but no, no, no. it was just it's clearly it, it, a, a, a strong memory in you you know it, it did something it, it did do something yeah um and then a few years you know in the next within the next few years um there were other kids in the neighborhood that had commodore 64s as well and i didn't think anything of it at the time really but there was sort of a neighborhood i just assumed that this was how games were distributed or something but there was sort of a neighborhood piracy ring oh I, yeah I don't, this I, is this is very very common like everybody has yeah, this yeah like i would go over to a friend's house and i would bring some discs that i i guess i i had gotten from you know I, either my dad or you know whatever uh that that had games on them and then i would come home with a few new discs or something and i i mean i just you know i had no, i was not really aware of the like legal implications of that. I, I knew there were game stores where you bought them, but uh, I guess I don't know. Nobody ever told me that. Well, that yeah, was... totally. It's weirdly <laughs> Which... this this doesn't this this is quite rare amongst um, Americans that I speak to. Like a lot of the British people and and Australians actually. The episode that just came out today was with uh, Bennett Foddy, and he talked about how just yeah. that that was how everybody grew up. But I think because they were of all the people i've spoken to so far anyway there was much less of a home computer scene in america especially for the younger people it was all consoles so there hasn't been quite as much of the kind of the you know yeah. bonding through piracy essentially well yeah because and i think um i mean I'm, I'm i'm bringing that up more to talk about like the impact that it had on how i perceived games and consumed them um because i do think um i mean yeah like i i think if i had grown up in like an, an atari nes you know, super Sega Genesis sort of household. Um, I do think my taste in games and just my identity as a creator of them would be pretty dramatically different. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that's something that you've come across a lot yeah. with this with this series. But um, so the, the the reason that I that I brought that up was because I think it, it's sort of building on that that initial encounter with with Kinder Comp. You would get these discs, and sometimes they would have the name of a game scrawled on them, and sometimes not. And so you would just load them up, and you had no idea what to expect. 
Um, sometimes there would be a menu, uh, you know, with a crack trail or something that would be like, okay, here's five different games you can choose from. And sometimes it was just, you know, you load the game up directly, but each and every game was sort of like a jump into some unknown continent of newness. Um, that's really exciting though. That's so exciting. A way to experience a game with just literally no idea what you're going to play. It was, yeah, yeah, and I, and there was also this combination of, I mean, back in those days, genres were so much more fluid, you know, yeah. people, like, they existed certainly as, as market categories or whatever, and I'm sure magazines talked about them, but, um, and, and my awareness of genre and my ability to sort of learn that sort of, you know, what the formal constraints were, was still quite low, you know, when I was still like seven, eight years old or something, and so... Yeah, like I feel like that gave me a sense of I, I can name off some of the some of the games that I that I ran across, but the, the diversity of them I think more so than any the impact of any individual game, sort of gave me this sense that there really were no real walls in games. Like there were, you could load up a game and you didn't know if you were going to be typing, uh, in you know. Z machine commands into a into a text prompt. You didn't know if you were going to be like controlling a fast action platformy kind of thing, or doing some sort of like strategic thing. Um, yeah, and I'm curious. Um, is there was there one that kind of as much as you said like the genres are quite fluid then, and so you, you know you, there wouldn't be like oh, okay, it's another shooting game or whatever. It could combine lots of different genres. But was, was there a game that you came across that just seemed completely? impossible compared to all the others like how on earth does this exist why aren't all of the games like this yeah yeah there there were a few um because yeah people were also like really striving technologically um Mm -hmm. there was one called uh forbidden forest by um i forget the guy's name uh paul norman maybe uh cosme software published it um and i think he was just like this wild talent programmer sort of guy um but i think there was there was something particularly about how that game um it had these fairly lush detailed backgrounds as well as like fairly large sprites and it had this ominous soundtrack that played at the beginning and um so yeah like there was this it was very beautiful but there was also like this deep kind of dread that came with it um and um what's that game was that was like a platform game was it exploration I think you were like it was a, it was sort of a side view. You were running around a forest, and you had and you had like a bow and arrow, and were shooting things or something. Okay. Um, like the actual mechanics, I don't I don't even remember very clearly because I didn't play this game that much. You know, that was the other thing is that like these games were sort of transient in a way. You would get them and play them, but then off, you know, unless you really really unless it one really really stuck, you would kind of you wouldn't hold on to it for long. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, in looking back now, I think uh, one of the interesting things about about that game and then other games like it is that Commodore 64 had two different ways of putting graphics on the screen. It had a character mode, which is sort of like, you know, doing different hacks with the, you know, I don't know, what was it, 40 by 40 by 25 column uh, like character that, yeah. thing, which was comparatively high resolution, but it had like various like color and... Uh, you know, you could only have two car- two colors per block, and uh, you know all the blocks had to be drawn from from the tile bank. And then you also just had normal sprites that were just made of pixels and could have transparency and stuff like that. Um, and looking back, like I look at, I've looked at so many old Commodore sixty four games and so many old uh, console games, and even something like the NES, which had its own weird limitations as far as how it put graphics on the screen. 
And I feel like the, the graphical palette of like sometimes people would make a decision on a Commodore 64 game to just have like really gigantic chunky sprites. And sometimes they would have they would try to like do everything in that kind of high res mode. Mm-hmm. And so the both the limited nature of the colors that made you very aware of like the, the, the limit one dimension of the visual limitations, but also the sort of fluid nature of resolution limitations um, gave, I don't know, like I feel like, so I, I didn't have any understanding of that technically as a kid, obviously, yeah. but I think it, it created an, an interesting, more squishy space. I don't know. I look at, I look at so many NES games and it's like, that's an extremely well-crafted NES game. And I kind of know exactly how they put all of that on screen. And I think you can kind of internalize that even as a kid playing it, like, okay, everything is tile-based. You know, you're very acute, like you play Super Mario Brothers and like, you know, you know exactly kind of like you could if once somebody shows you the sprite sheet for that game, you kind of under you, you're you're maybe halfway to understanding how that entire game was put together. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't know. So I, I and again, I don't want to dwell too much on the mystif- on the mystical nature of these things because honestly, all these different pieces of hardware were just making different trade offs. But they had pretty profound aesthetic implications, and that's another thing that I think is interesting. In the same way that I find '90s FPS engines interesting, is that you know. These relative, a relatively small number of decisions had profound aesthetic implications and implications for the development of the game. Like you're actually shaping your creative process. Um, and I think, I don't know, that's something that, you know, that there's, that's, a, that's a reason that I made this weird ASCII engine. It's the reason that I'm working with Doom. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting source of constraints and, and oh, aesthetic. Oh, no, it totally uh, is. It, it's, I, I always find it. Um a real shame though that you you kind of have to understand that before you can properly appreciate it if you, if you know what i mean like um, absolutely yeah there's, there's yeah, a lot it, of people like like craig for instance my friend craig he designed the the cover art for the show he does a lot of really exceptional um spectrum graphics he, he and he does oh, it using yes. the actual limitations of the spectrum and like you look at some of it and because he's explained to me how he does it and and i understand the limitations of the the kind of the hardware i'm like that that is incredible but if, if you're just you know looking at it you're like what's well, all right you could you not have added a few more colors and you know, exactly, a bit higher yeah. resolution yeah and the 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 specu which i'm i'm pretty i'm sad that i missed out on a uk childhood <laughs> in addition yeah. to my because yeah like you look at that and you're you can you can see the color block limitations even more clearly yeah uh, and that gives it like this kind of deep integrity i don't know i i've i've completely romanticized you know all those all the all the the 80s British micros and you know all the all the wonderful things that people made with that um, sort of in retrospect you know learning about it in the you know yeah in the past no I mean it, so. it, but it is very much like I, I can't think of the way to describe it, it is it is definitely a, a retrospective um, appraisal of them I I don't I wouldn't play any of it those is, games yeah. they they'd be awful <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I can well, I can fully appreciate them way more than I ever would as a as a kid you know. No, ab- absolutely. And it is true that like a lot of these games don't hold up. Um, yeah, like they don't hold up as pieces of game design. They don't hold up visually. Um, you know, so it's more like, yeah, when I talk about romanticizing, you know, these things that I grew up with. And I think what a lot of people talk about when they romanticize anything that they grew up with, whether it's games or music or anything, they're kind of talking about this entire emotional context around those things that I think actually can be um, revisited in art in a way that is not just sad and backward looking and, you know, sort of 
blinkered, really, you know? Absolutely. So I think that's what's valuable about it. You know, it's not that I think, you know, 6502 programming is the greatest and the Commodore 64, you know, yada yada is like this technically superior or just it's the only way a game should be made. It's more just like this gave me a feeling that is hard for me to get with games that I play today, as wonderful as they may be. Um, and I think that feeling isn't just about living in the past. I think it's like there's some sort of sense of, you know, it's that sense of possibility and imagination um, that I think like the very best games being made today, you know, do can recapture. I think it's absolutely, you know, so, and it's not, so I don't see it as a matter of going back. It's more just like drawing on life experience to produce new things. And I think that's really important and wonderful. Absolutely. And, and so that, just to put this in a place, you, you grew up in, in Texas, right? Yes. And so <clears throat> I find it quite interesting that you had this community around you of people with, with who also had, you know, home computers. So was that, was that quite rare? And did, and did you, aside from like, obviously, you know, swapping tapes and, well, not tapes, you had discs and cartridges, but was, was there, did you develop a kind of sense of community around, around games, like from an early age? Well, um, I mean, it was, it was just, it was more a community of friends that are just neighborhood kids, you know, I mean, these were really just, um, that, uh, oh, sorry, my computer's gone to sleep here. Um, yeah, it was really just a community of neighborhood kids, you know, who happened to would ride bikes together and, you know, go on, like have adventures out in the fields and stuff together and then also play games, you know, so, yeah. um, but then, yeah, like, you know, so games were just one of the, the sort of things that, that, that we did. Um, it's not too, like, in retrospect, it's not quite as surprising to me that there was this high density of, like, kids with computers and stuff. Just because it was the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which, you know, in, in, the, 80, in, the, in the 80s uh, was sort of a, was a bit of a tech, you know, I mean, Tandy Computer was based there. And I, yeah. I guess, like, I haven't seen it, but the first season of Halt and Catch Fire is about, you know, like, tech entrepreneurship in the early 80s sort of thing where, you know, that, you know, the, there was that wild west of microcomputers where people were taking 6502s and Z80s and just seeing what they could, seeing what kind of consumer market they could have out of thin air um, with a good basic interpreter. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it just emerged re really naturally. I mean, it just, it, I would have had obviously a very different life if it had been uh, cassette tapes, you know, of, Absolutely. of, of, of punk music or, you know, classic rock or whatever in, instead of games. Um, but yeah, games were sort of, uh, yeah, they were, they sort of like created this, this parallel world of imagination to go along with the, um, as I remember it, I mean, it was, it felt very lush at the time and stuff, but like, you know, the landscape there is very flat and riding bikes over long distances, you know, to find like the, the one field that had a couple of jumps you could do with your bike in it, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that was sort of a, that was sort of a beautiful frontier in and of itself. But, um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm spoiled. I, I talk about all of this in our autobiographical architecture actually. So I don't want to like spoil that, spoil that kind of stuff too deeply. Cause I, I think I, I do a better job of communicating it, you know, there. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah. And and so, as you as you got like, did you uh, actually? I meant to ask this as well. Did, was this just you, or do you have brothers and sisters that that played as well? Or um, my sister is ten years younger than me, so uh, I 
you know, like when she finally came around, I was, I was on to DOS games, you know, it was the nineties yeah, and I was on to DOS games and we did definitely enjoy games together. Yeah. Like there was a bunch of, I remember her coming in and seeing me playing like doom and syndicate, like these violent games sometimes. And I was like, uh, I don't, this is kind of bloody. I don't know if mom and dad would like me playing this in front of you, but I don't know. She loved it, you know, <laughs> And they are very, yeah, she got c- c- very tame in comparison. There, you know, like the the gore. Yeah, the, I, true, although I suppose yeah. the the chainsaw um, is is always quite visceral, regardless <laughs> yeah, of when yeah. when you play it. Yeah, I should ask her what 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 seeing like her memories of what seeing Doom was like. Because uh, yeah, like I I don't know what that what that would have you know because because to like a what thirteen year old kid that was pretty awesome to have a chainsaw with you know, blood going everywhere. Whereas for, you know, a, a three or four year old kid, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think a lot of that as well, though. I remember as a kid, like, obviously I, I, the gory of the game, the, the better. And I would revel in, cause I'm, I'm much younger than all my brothers and sisters. There's a 10 year gap and they uh-huh. kind of never really played games that much. So I would always tell them all these amazing games. And I remember especially telling my sister about Splatterhouse. I was playing Splatterhouse on the <laughs> yep. Mega Drive, I think. And just really reveling in all the gory details, and then I showed it to her, and she was like, "Oh, right, this this is not what I was expecting from your description. You can barely make <laughs> out anything at all that's going on here, but <laughs> yeah. in your head, you you build it up so much more." And so, yeah. were, you, were you always um, computers? Then did you ever get a console? No, not until I, the first console I bought, I guess, was a uh, a PlayStation Two that I bought with my first game industry job money. Oh, um, wow, that that late. But yeah, were yeah. you aware so, of it though as you've grown up? Yeah, absolutely. Like, so you know, fr- neighborhood friends did have. Uh, I guess one or two had an Atari twenty six hundred, so I played some of that with them. And then uh, a couple of friends had NES and NES, obviously. So, you know, I, I was I was I was aware enough of it, um, but not enough. There's there's only precious few console games of the eighties that I have like a real that I had a, a, a connection to going back that far. Um, of course, I rediscovered in the late '90s. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I was in I was in university then, and emulators were becoming a thing. And at that point, I was getting you know pretty interested in game development and game design, just as as broadly defined as as you will. And yeah. so I was like, wow, I missed a lot of stuff not having like a Super Nintendo and stuff like that. So I went back and played, you know, a bunch of stuff and sort of um, you know you know, did remedial games education. Absolutely. But I, I think everybody different... did. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, but so it, that gives, that gives you a very different connection to old stuff when you're, you've experienced it as, you know, uh, a young adult or something versus if you had that, those sort of weird fuzzy, you know, uh, kid first impressions of it, you absolutely. know, I, I was just processing it really differently. And w- but were you like, um, not territorial what am i thinking of like like did, did did you sort of see consoles and think well whatever i've got i've got a computer at home you should see what my computer could do yeah i mean i think like in the late the late 90s were probably the worst time for that because yeah like i remember um my roommate and i in in college both had um pcs that could run quake and we had uh we bought cheap land cards so we were playing land quake on I, I think I think she had a 3D accelerated, uh, you know, of a first generation 3D effects card, and you know, so we were playing like 3D accelerated Quake over LAN 
with a mouse and keyboard when our roommates were when other other folks in the dorm were playing GoldenEye on N64. Yeah. And at the time I was yeah, I was I think I was I was pretty unfairly snobby about that. And it took <laughs> and, and it took a good few years for me to lose that console snobbishness, you know, like and even when Halo when the first Halo came out, you know, people were freaking out about that on on Xbox on Xbox 1 and um you know, and by that point I was playing uh, I guess Tribes 2 in 1024 by 768 over the internet and stuff like that, you know, and I was like, well, this Tribes 2 seems like it was the game that Halo was originally trying to be before they kind of, you know, got sort of turned towards, you know, and obviously that's, 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 um, that's, that's not fully appreciating a lot of what they did with Halo, which was figure out how to make that stuff work on a console. And the big thing that I missed, the huge thing that I missed was that it was all, it was four people crowded on, you know, on the same couch, on the same crummy dorm couch probably uh you know all hooting and hollering as they played split screen goldeneye you know running around those levels and filling them with traps and you know getting the drop on each other so i think there was a social chemistry there that i had no that i didn't really appreciate you know um you know and you still get that with lan obviously you know so it's still i I was still definitely getting some of that with quake and starcraft i guess and whatever but you can't um, elbow somebody in the ribs if they're (laughs) <laughs> if they've shot you so you've yeah, got that slight I, disadvantage yeah and i think it is it's sort of connected in a different way i think there's still a lot of value in that that experience of playing games together with somebody on a couch you know i mean s- split screen has always been this sort of obnoxious technical trade-off where you know you're having to kind of divide the screen or something but um i mean other types of games don't have to have split screen they just put all the action on one screen um, I don't know. I, so I think that that's still important. And I, I certainly came around eventually to be like, okay, no, Halo did some legit game design things. And I mean, I, I lost, I was never, I never really had the, like, I wanted a PS2 as, as soon as I had the money for it. You know, like I said, um, I, I, I wanted a PS2 because there were interesting things happening, you know, and within, within a few months of that, I had Ico and Res and all these other, like, you know. Oh, it was I, a good I, time. Like, as a good, yeah, the, yeah, probably like the best were, console, which is yeah. There were clearly some vibrant things happening there, so yeah. But at what point, like before all this, like as you were still growing up, was there? Uh, did you ever sort of conceive of, of working in games and making games? Like, was there a point where that kind of idea was first kind of born in you? Yeah, well, I was eased into it pretty gradually. Partly, um, I mean, there were games, there were Commodore sixty four games that did have level editors. Um, and that was just sort of a fun thing to play with, you know, like even then I think it kind of created this exciting sense of like, oh, well, yeah, you, this game has infinite levels then basically because I could make anything I could, I could, I could think up. Um, and it carried on through to, uh, the, the ninth, you know, my second big era of, of games, uh, when I had a PC and I still didn't have a modem, but I would ride my bike over to friends' houses that, that did have a modem with some blank floppy disks, and they would download stuff off of, they would download things like Wolfenstein shareware. So one day I came home with Wolfenstein 3D shareware uh, in, a, in a few floppy disks in my, in my bike bag. <clears throat> and you cycled uh, very fast home with that. I, I did, yeah, because like, so I, I think I, I talked to my friend on the phone before I, I, I headed over. He was like, I've got Wolfenstein 3D. Um, it's a 3D game. You've got to see it. And so I didn't really know what he meant by that. You know, like I, I think I, I maybe had it confused with the arcade game Operation Wolf, which is just like a, um, 
I think you described it as like a shooting game, you know, like it's, yeah. it, it, you can shoot stuff. In. And so I thought of that arcade game where it's just like a light gun game or something. And you're like, okay, big deal. We're scrolling past environments. <clears throat> and he loads it up at his place and it's like, okay, where I'm looking at a door and a, and a hand with a gun comes up and then, you know, he pushed left or right on the arrow keys and the room moved around it. I mean, I'm sure everybody had this experience basically, but like that was, I was like, Oh, <laughs> it was sort of this, this changes everything. Realization. It did change everything. Yeah. It, it kind of did. Um, because yeah, I took that, I took that shareware episode home and I played through it multiple times with different friends and stuff. We would take turns at the keyboard, you know, when we would die and stuff. And, um, and then, yeah, I got hungry for I, – I probably came by, the, uh, by the, the registered version through illicit means. So, sorry, John Romero and others who, who might be listening. Um, I, I went back and, and bought all of that stuff in collections later. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I did – that was the first game that I was like, okay, I am going to actively seek out a level editor for this because I can see the potential in this and this is really exciting. So I got a Wolfenstein 3D level editor. I think I, I probably would have been in like junior high or something at that point. And, uh, yeah, like it, Wolfenstein 3D particularly, you, the, you can represent basically everything about a map in one top-down view. You know, it kind of looks like a Pac-Man maze where it's just all made out of blocks and you can place down walls of different – types and enemies and pickups and stuff like that. So I made, uh, I don't think I made anything particularly notable in Wolfenstein 3D, but it was definitely exciting. And I think I did make like an entire episode, you know, of like what, nine or 10 levels. That's quite bold. um, Usually people just make like their house or, you know, their school or something. (laughs) Well, Wolfenstein 3D was such that like you couldn't really, I might've tried to make like the house interior, but it was so, you know, the levels were so blocky and, that you couldn't really take a, much of a stab at representationalism, mm-hmm. uh, which was interesting. I mean, I think it sort of forced you to think in terms of like, what would be an interesting world made of blocks to explore, you know? Um, and, you know, so you leaned on the textures, uh, you didn't even have lighting then or whatever. So, yeah, so I got, I, you know, I was still super into that. That was, that was exciting. Um, and then obviously Doom came out. Um, I think I actually got that at a, via a kid through through school. He he gave me Doom shareware on some floppy disks, and um, yeah, obviously, uh, I, I definitely talk about about this in autobiographical architecture. Um, yeah, there was something I, I immediately realized that this was like a quantum leap in terms of, um, <clears throat> and yeah, like. You know, the blood and the gore and the guns and stuff like that, that was exciting. You know, I was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something. So that, that was exciting to my adolescent brain. But I also kind of like, you know, I was playing it on a kind of crummy computer and on a kind of crummy sound blaster. And even like that, even the sort of degradation of it, you know, like hearing the the, the FM synth soundtrack and playing it in low detail mode and hearing like the even, you know, way worse than you, it would sound today, uh, sound effects and stuff. Um, there was something, I don't know, it, that just sort of made it all the more, like, profound and strange. Um, because particularly the lighting, you know, you would get, I, I don't know, I think it was, it was even more so than the addition of, like, all this extra geometric detail. It was the fact that you could have lighting and that the sound was, you know, a big push beyond and that you could see the sky, 
that um that episode one sky uh of that like you know it's like so there's red a sky in there. the mountains and stuff well that, that that's the episode two sky the episode one sky is like um it's this kind it looks kind of like misty mountains almost it's it's a it's a it's a karst mountain landscape that's actually from uh Yangshuo, china um and that, that's a whole nerdy obsession that I've uh, finding that exact spot where that photo was taken. Um, oh, so it's the real mountains. It is, yeah. So oh, wow. the, the history of that, uh, yeah. I, I mean, this this won't take long, I guess. But it's um, there was a there was a stock photo uh, that ended up as a default wallpaper for IBM OS two. Okay. Uh, and it's like a cavern. It's very clearly like a cavern looking out towards some mountains in China, and you can see like fields of rice and stuff in the foreground and all that. And so when the artists for Doom were making sky art, they found this thing and they cropped a particular piece of it. They just cropped specifically the mountain landscape because it looked kind of harsh and or just strange and alien. And so it's just that one little crop of it, you know, and then they turned that into a tiling sky texture that you see in episode one of, of Doom. Um, and then years later, I found that source image. And that was, a, that was sort of magical you know because it's like oh my gosh this is a real pl- this wasn't just a deluxe paint doodle you know it, it yeah looked, i could tell that it was photo sourced kind of but like um yeah and so like and so that that photo actually you know exists like it's still a relatively low fidelity fo- photo but i know roughly the region in china where it was shot and i know the photo and i i know the name of the photographer who took it and i reached out to him a while ago because i was like this is a long shot and it's pretty weird, but I would really like to know the exact location where you took that photo because <laughs> I would love to go back to that place and take that photo again. <laughs> I don't know, just like because I, it also just looks like a very beautiful part of the country. Like those Karsh yeah. mountains are, you know, they're like those sugar loaf shapes and it just looks very, you know, beautiful and otherworldly to me, you know, who grew up in completely flat Texas. And did, um, you, did you hear back? No, I haven't. I haven't heard back. Yeah, so I don't know. I'll. I'll there. Yeah. Maybe, oh maybe man, I'll, I want to find out where that is as well, eh? Yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I'll, maybe I'll complete that quest someday. I'll, I'll definitely tell people about it and write it. Imagine up just the- stumbling across that though. That'd be just insane. Just realizing, like, I, I had no idea that was a real place. Actually, I don't know if if I've got that image in my head clear enough to recognize it. But if yeah. if, if you were and you just you know you're stumbling around. And you're like, oh my god! Or if you were playing it in China, like near that place, yes, right, that'd be exactly. Crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's. I, I mean, there's a bunch of little bits in in Doom where that are like that, you know, where there's just like a little fragment of a stock photo that was modified almost beyond recognition, but it became this unique visual thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, like that that process of transformation. I'm pretty interested in because it's not just about what a weird old game did it's like oh yeah there's like we're kind of constantly reproducing human experience in this you know that's crazy just, why why is it about doom you think that that's had such a, a profound Im- impact on you and you must I have thought was, about this well yes yeah and and again like you know i'm thinking about it a lot just full time basically as yeah. i make this this uh, this thing it's um i think you know doom was the first point where I mean, there are Wolfenstein. So here, here, here's one thing that I should definitely talk about as we head into the '90s and, and 3D levels. Um, I remember game spaces. I sort of realized at an early point that like there's not really a whole lot of difference between the way that my brain remembers real spaces that I've been mm-hmm. and video game spaces that have enough of a sense of 
place about them. And I don't, and I don't even mean like representational space or anything. Um, and Wolfenstein 3D was like just on the, on the cusp of that, you know, where, uh, you know, you can, you, you do have like enough cues to sort of like remember a place as a unique place, but doom, I think doom having the addition of lighting and being able to represent enough structures that were, you know, I don't know. You could you could get close enough to reality. I think that was that was when people started making their houses and their schools, yeah, absolutely. And offices and things like that. You know, um, and um, I think that was you know that was the first time Doom was the first time that we got these doorways into 3D worlds, and because those 3D worlds were kind of changeable pretty much from the start. You know, like I I, I first I first played Doom I think in like January of 1994. So the game had been out for like less than a month at that point, and um, yeah. So you know, and then the first tools and custom levels started appearing within a few months after that. So the fact that this was a these were 3D these were pretty these were 3D worlds that had kind of their own integrity as places and the tools to make your own worlds were available almost from the start. Um, that had a pretty, that had a pretty dramatic effect on me. Um, and I, you know, I carried that sense of remembering 3d places like d digital spaces, um, with me just till today, really, uh, because every place I would visit, you know, I mean, there was always like a, there's always a mechanical context and there's a context of like that game as a technical achievement and as a consumer product, but places also have their own kind of soul about them. And, um, I think it's interesting to consider that on its own, you know, that's, that's partly why I did the, the game tourism, why, why I do the game tourism thing. Yeah. Because it really, it's just about isolating game spaces as, as their own artifacts. Yeah. Talk about that briefly, just, just to explain what that is that you've kind of, you've created tools that kind of remove the, the game from the game essentially. So you can just explore the worlds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just a, it's a page on my website where I collect mods that people have made. And in some cases mods that I've made that um, just kind of deactivate combat you know, mostly so that mostly what you're doing in an old game like Unreal or, you know, Thief or something is you can just explore it at your own, you know, you can, there's, there's, it removes most of the conflict so that yeah. you're more or less just free to explore the game and kind of take in the sights and sounds or just do whatever. I mean, it's, it's pretty open-ended and subjective really. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you've, you've always had that kind of connection to the, the sort of virtual space as as just as a place to 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 visit and kind of to take in and enjoy yeah, i suppose yeah. yeah yeah i think so and um and i can think back on those spaces and i what i was saying before was that specifically the act of remembering those places is not extraordinarily different from remembering a place that i've been in real life you know um and by that i mean specifically first person spaces i guess although third person still kind of um just because like the way that you experience them I mean, it's sort of close enough. I don't know. Maybe I have like a a, a more willing suspension of disbelief yeah. there. I'm I'm curious, like if if you played um, much kind of multiplayer games or, or MMOs, because like one of the one of the reasons why why places in your life, like literal physical places, have you know such 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 a, a power and such memory is because of things that happened there you know things that you experienced with other people so did, did you ever play anything like warcraft or anything and, and have those kind of same connections 
No, I've I've never played an MMO actually, but um, but I did play a ton of multiplayer. Yeah, like playing LAN and then internet uh, games, like you know, especially in the in the in the late '90s when it was just so novel and fresh. Um, yeah, like multiplayer had a pretty huge impact on it because yeah, that was sort of um, you know multiplayer spaces are in some ways they have almost more integrity as just places because they're built for you to be in them for a long time. Whereas single player spaces are more just like you play this level, but you, once, once you finish this level, there's no guarantee that you'll, that you're ever coming back to it. So you're not really dwelling in it. Whereas, you know, multiplayer levels are the sorts of things where people go back to it after a decade and they look at it and they're like, Oh yeah, I remember this room. I died a whole bunch of times in this room, or I remember camping in this room, or I remember waiting to, for, to start a raid in this room with my friends and we were talking about about something and my friend had just broken up with with a with a partner or something absolutely you know, just, yeah no that, that, that's exactly yeah. what i'm thinking of um, yeah yeah so i i am sad that i yeah i just never really like mmos uh, i i don't know i couldn't even I only mention really MMOs because I, that that those are the kind of the unique sort of game worlds that you're not necessarily it's not just like a multiplayer deathmatch they're the best example i could think of of people coming together cooperatively or sometimes just literally just to hang out and chat and be in a, a virtual space even something oh, like uh, yeah. like the habbo hotel i remember being one of the first mm-hmm. things i ever sort of the first virtual world i inhabited with other people i suppose this ridiculous pixel pixelated fake hotel but it was magical it was wonderful because you know you're not just typing little in messages in boxes to each other you're you're well you are but you're also seeing versions of yourself wearing stupid t-shirts and dancing and things <laughs> yeah yeah i i am i am sad that i didn't have more formative experiences like that yeah i because it, it does seem it does it seems really powerful honestly yeah um yeah for me i think it was it, this is making me realize that it was kind of more solitary for me you know a lot of times i was it was a single player space um, or it was like a multiplayer map that I was developing or something. Yeah. That, um, yeah. So I, I, you know, which has its own, I mean, you know, it's not bad to be alone and having <laughs> necessarily. Oh, absolutely not. No, uh, no, I was just curious. Just kind of gives, other experiences. That, yeah, I'm sure absolutely. that's why, I'm sure that accounts for some of the lonely mood of, uh, of, of this, of this thing that I'm making now. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're talking about a relationship with spaces and they have kind of certain, a certain amount of nostalgia and, you know, they, they, they have, memories within them but you could also use spaces to to make memories like you know the the classic um uh, memorization through uh, mnemonics and so you know the, there are people who who are specialists in in memory who will literally build levels in in quake and and doom in order to remember like ridiculously long sequences of like playing cards or or people's mm-hmm. information and you will build a, a place that you explore and you, you know, you're, it's the, the mind palace, right? And you go into your mind palace and you, you know the world so well that you can explore it and, and bring back these relatively trivial memories, essentially. But it's just that it's a feat of memory. So the, I, I only bring that up as an example of how, how practical th- those kind of effects can be. Like there is definitely a, a link between a space and, and, and a mind and you can, you can map it that way. That that's very apropos, actually, because yeah, I realized you know a while a while ago now that I absolutely do that. I I use, yeah, I build like spaces or attach things to places that I've been. I mean, I think the, one of the classic memory techniques is remember your childhood, the house where you grew up, 
if there were if it was on a street and there were mailboxes or something, use those little things as waypoints and as as the things that and you then you tie specific memories like yeah if yeah. you're trying to remember digits of pi or just you know a long complex sequence or something. So yeah, no, I I, I absolutely yeah I, I definitely I was unconsciously doing that for just years and years. Um, yeah, and I, I think my memory is just generally spatialized. Like I have a, a quite a good head for dates, you know, specifically. Like just if I need to remember what I was doing on a particular week, well, probably not week at this point because I am getting older and my memory is <laughs> getting fuzzier. But just like a particular month in, say, like 2002, it's like okay, yeah, I can probably I can probably figure out what um, what I was, you know, what I what I was doing. That is crazy. That I don't think I could do that for last year. Let alone uh, <laughs> 2002. Yeah. Especially well, I, 2002 because I, I was in university, so God knows what I was doing. Sure, yeah. Well, I also cheat a bit in that I have um, – I, I started keeping archives. Like as soon as I got a CD burner, I, I started uh, saving any piece any piece of data that I touched basically like um, – you know, web pages that I made or just like emails. I have an email archive that goes back to about like September of 1997. Oh, I'm so, so jealous uh, of that. And like chat logs and stuff like that. So, you know, it, having those reference points to be able to kind of dig back and be like, oh yeah, th- that I was mistaken. This, this was actually, it was actually at this point that I did this. Um, so yeah, you know, I keep, I keep, a, I'm a digital pack rat and I keep, uh, I keep all that weird old stuff. Um, so I, I genuinely, I, I, I'm uh, a friend of ours was was staying with uh, me and my girlfriend last year, and yeah, he's known my girlfriend longer longer than I have, like going back fifteen, sixteen years, and he had all of their old kind of IRC chats and emails, oh, and yeah. oh, yeah. it was it was, just, it was a, 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 such a wonderful thing, so much better than it's literally like here's a transcript of a conversation we had when we were you know yeah. fourteen. It's like oh my god. Uh, what I would, what I wouldn't give for for that sort of stuff, and as much as I say, now I'm glad that I'm not, you know, a teenager on the internet because God knows the things I would be saying. <laughs> right. I do, I do really regret not having like websites I made, my first ever website when I was like 17 or something. As embarrassing as and awful as it would be, I would love to have that. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I kind of, I think I was exactly the right age that um, I was only a jerk for a, f- I was only a young jerk. For on the internet for a few years before I kind of grew up enough <laughs> that, yeah. you know, I, I haven't left too much embarrassing documentation of my, of myself. Um, but it's, I mean, having that kind of archive, um, I mean, it, you know, it's, I don't, I don't refer, I only refer to it when I feel like I really need to honestly, because there's some painful stuff in there as well. You know, like there's first conversations with people that, you know, I ended up having significant relationships with that, uh, are, that are gone now obviously yeah. so it's like yeah that's that's that can be pretty heavy like venturing back into that so i better make sure that you know even just like like i have all all the emails from my time at 2k marin so i've I, i've got like an archive of the very first like okay we're hiring people we're hiring all these people that became you know dear friends and colleagues and stuff and and then i can also fast forward and see like the emails from around the time that i left and how sad it had become at that point so you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> you know, I, I, I it's wonderful. I, I, I would be devastated if I lost that archive. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a heavy thing to have. <laughs> I've noted that at this point, like, uh, we, we haven't spoken specifically, 
about about many games like i'm mean, obviously like doom and 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 wolfenstein and things but did you play quite a lot or, or did you kind of fixate on on specific games for a long period I, I did play a lot of stuff. Um, the the whole tradition of uh, of yeah, I mean, I, I played just as many. I was just as prolific a PC gamer as I was a Commodore sixty four gamer throughout the nineties. So I have a lot of. I would say that probably the nineties are where the most formative games I have are. Um, but um, yeah, and I it was I I made a list of like all the all the nineties games that I that had a huge impact on me, and it's it's hard to even pick you know some some of the biggest ones but um but yeah and then like on into in the 2000s last decade i you know that was when i was starting to develop games professionally and so you know that changed my relationship to it but there's still a lot of like really treasured games so i was really just kind of trying to i don't know if i made a comprehensive list it would just be you know hundreds or thousands oh, absolutely of yeah so, but, um, so when did that shift occur then when did you sort of consciously decide okay i'm gonna make video games yeah, well, so in high school, I made a couple of Doom maps, um, and that was still more sort of as a as an amateur thing because the people weren't were not were not quite yet getting jobs doing that. Um, but as I went into, I went to art school thinking that I wanted to be a computer animator. You know, Pixar was just getting started with its feature length animation. That was and that was a huge thing. And so yeah, I was like, I want to be an animator. While I was there, though, I um, I that was when like Half-Life came out while I was and Unreal uh, and Quake 3 came out while I was at university. Wow. And, um, you know, those games were the first games to have like really significant mod support to the point that it's like, okay, yeah, some of the people doing mod work are getting, uh, are getting jobs doing this stuff. They're getting hired by these same studios that make these games. And it's like, hmm, that's, that's pretty attractive actually. And weirdly, some of my same animators, some of my skills are transferable and also, I seem to have a good head for this like game architecture stuff. So yeah, I made uh, half like Quake and Half Life, uh, and I and a little later Unreal levels in my spare time. And that that work is what ended up getting me my first level design job. And so, where was that? Where you were know, you in, in university? I was at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. So yeah, and I just uh, a couple of my friends. Uh, got jobs at uh they, they actually got jobs straight out of they actually dropped out of school to uh to get job to take jobs working on anachronox at ion storm dallas and i was thinking that i was going to do that it's like okay cool my two former roommates are working here now i'm going to to do this but that was by the time i was knocking on their door it was the point where uh where they were where ion storm was starting to uh was starting to get to get worried about about money and worried about finishing anachronox and stuff like that so um so that that didn't work but that didn't work out but you know i, I got my got my first job at human head in, in madison wisconsin so and when you say you were making levels were you making games or were you just building levels like what, what was the the approach when you were you were designing things yeah well i i was i was definitely just making levels at first and then once i I think like over the summer of 1999, I made a, a Half-Life deathmatch level that was not like this big opus or anything. And I mean, I think it's maybe still up on the internet somewhere, but um, it was well-reviewed enough that I was like, hey, I'm actually kind of good at this. Um, and I started having... Um, I started having my own ideas for games, you know, like like worlds, stories, you know, mechanics, stuff like that. And I was like, hey... 
people do make these things called total conversions, you know, where they sort of like make something that's not just a Half-Life level where you're Gordon Freeman or a nameless multiplayer opponent. They make, you know, they like have their own story concept and just world and whatever. So I'm going to, I have an idea for that, but of course, you know, I still didn't know that much about game development. So it was like huge and audacious and hopelessly overambitious. But I did have the sense to be like, well, what if I just make like a tiny, tiny little demo for it? that just shows off like kind of the world and like the art style and stuff like that. And so I made what was basically like a mini mod. It, it was certainly not a total conversion, you know, because like, and, and I never released it except just as a portfolio thing to like the few companies that I applied to. I think I applied to Valve and Looking Glass and uh, I forget who else, you know, and then obviously Human Head. Um, Anyway, uh, so yeah, it was really like that mod work specifically that showed off level design and scripting and texturing and like I did some sound design for it and some voice acting for it and stuff like that. Um, I have not shown that off publicly. I, I, I might dig that up if I can overcome my embarrassment at it. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've posted screenshots of it. Um, but anyway, that, that was enough of like a all-in-one package to be like, hey, this is actually a... a a, port a good enough portfolio piece that you know a couple of game companies called me back and Human Head flew me up for the interview and they made me an offer and, and then I was like okay I'm moving to Madison Wisconsin where I've never been before so so yeah that's exciting that was my that was my that's my that's my joining the circus story <laughs> um, I'm going to to ask a couple of relatively quick fire questions they may not uh, they may not be that quick fire but that's fine um, if you're I mean, you may not be somebody who's who's prone to this, but if you if you have been in the past, what was your worst rage quit? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't really get. I mean, I certainly get frustrated, but like, I don't know. The whole like throwing the controller, you know. I don't know. I don't have much. I of want. A temper, yeah, I, I, don't want, think. I want proper punching I, holes in walls. I can't really. So. It's more just, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of like, yeah, just like the most incredibly frustrating moments. Um, there was a particular uh, boss maybe in Metroid Prime 2, which I would have been playing like shortly after its release, probably like 2005, that I was just like, it was a lot of work to get to it. And then you actually get there and it's got these really tough to, tough to learn patterns. And I just like it after it beat me for like the third or fourth time after like you know four or five hours of like just trying to <laughs> trying to beat it i just sort of like broke down and just you know i didn't cry but i was just sort of like utterly defeated you know i think that's my that's my version of a rage quit is just like <laughs> you know um reaching the end of my patience and just feeling just feeling demoralized honestly you know it's it's feeling demoralized is oh. is, is, is my is my version of that games can be brutal um, yeah. on, on a slightly more up, upbeat note, uh, what game has made you laugh the most? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's almost certainly like a multiplayer, a, multi a game with that kind of absurd physics multiplayer slapstick kind of stuff, you know? Because yeah. even though, I mean, you know, there's a lot of funny games that I consider important and influential, like the old LucasArts games and stuff, you know, I, I adored those. Um, but as far as just like actual laughing out loud, probably I don't know, maybe like Team Fortress Classic or uh, Unreal Tournament, CTF or something, where it's just a bunch of people, particularly when it's like other people in the room with you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I, I, I did a YouTube video recently where I went over all the old Unreal Tournament CTF maps that we would play on, like at Human Head, where it was all of us in our different cubicles and we were just like shouting over cubicle walls and just like hooting and hollering and just having a good old time. <laughs> um, you know, just seeing what we could pull off and something absurd happening, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. Okay, on, on a similar tip then, um, is that uh, what what game are you are you best at? Would you say you are best at? If you had to like probably. you know play a game with death, in, in terms of sheer number of hours, probably Doom. Uh, although like I'm 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 pretty good. I'm a pretty good Doom single player player. Whereas the actual amount of Doom deathmatch I've done in my life is relatively low. Have you ever done um, a, a speed run? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've done, yeah, I did like a speed run recently. I think while while Awesome Games Done Quick was was going, I was like, how long would it take me to run through episodes one through three of Doom? And it was like, yeah, my time was decent. It was like, it was like twenty something minutes. It was twenty twenty one minutes. Um, and what's and I did the get to, what, what what's the record of that? I, I don't know. I'm not oh, it's something it. absurd. I'm sure. You know, it's it's like the 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 degree to which people have broken that game open and figured out all the weird little tricks and stuff you can do. Is just you know I'm I'm sure it's yeah I, I I couldn't even tell you but I'm sure you could look it up on YouTube or something and just find out like yeah um, I, I did get to deathmatch John Romero at GDC one year like a couple of years ago he was I think there were just some Doom machines set up and there was like a queue where you had to qualify and then this was before I I met him sort of in earnest for the for the devs play thing that that two player productions shot yeah but um. And going into that, uh, a, a colleague was like, if you get one kill on him, you should count yourself lucky. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, we'll see how I do here. And I got, I, I got 10 frags to his 20, you know, so that's, that's not bad. I that's mean, not I, bad I think, at all. Yeah, some people got, got closer than that, but, you know, yeah. So I, I held my own in, in Doom 2 Map 1 against, against John Romero. So, you know, I mean, but Deathmatch has, has not really been my, my thing for ages and ages but sorry i'm I, I'm, I'm very distracted i was looking up uh the doom world record and there is just yeah there is so many uh subcategories of, that's right of there's records. different flavors yeah yeah i would say like you know just ultra violence difficulty just fastest possible run you know not using any cheats would probably be the the most vanilla category to do that in although even a uv run is going to be five minutes five minutes it, no no that, that can't be right I, I could definitely believe that for episode one but oh uh, yeah no know. that's just the first episode right okay yeah yeah that, that's this that's, the, this is going to ruin the rest of the show if i end up looking up doom speed runs but it's very just, fast yeah. it's very fast yes people go very fast in that game because you run even just the, your normal run speed in that game is something like scale 45 miles per hour or so yeah yeah so you're just this bizarre hummingbird <laughs> of a player yeah Oh, amazing! Um, has there ever been a game that you have had to walk away from that that was kind of overtaking your your life a little bit? But you've never played a, a, a MMO, so maybe not. But <laughs> taking over my life, um... like where you've had to be like, right, I need to take this game out of my life because it is uh, it's ruining certain aspects of it. Okay, it's just consuming so much of my time. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I've had games take over my life, but <laughs> the few times that's happened like i've gotten a job or you know something like a, it's 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 been beneficial to me in some way which well, is absolutely yeah sort of dangerous um 
Yeah, I don't know. As an adult, um, no sort of Candy Crush addictions or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, certainly nowadays, like addic- addictive properties are like very much not a selling point for me. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, j- very recently, actually, I was playing N plus plus a bunch, um, which is just you know this masterpiece brutal platformer um not so much because it's like you know has any addictiveness engineered into it but just it's difficult enough it has just this perfect difficulty curve and so much depth to it um it was hurting my uh, my thumb <laughs> i was getting sort of like the modern equivalent of nintendo thumb um just because i yeah and so i was just like my i don't want to like i don't want my thumb to just be hurting while i'm like typing and doing work and like living my life so i think i'm going to give this game a break for a few days <laughs> until my thumb you know need to heal up put that on ice for a couple of days yeah yeah, I'm on the I'm on the I'm on the disabled list for 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 a few days with that. <laughs> um, okay, so 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 what happened after Human Head? Did you go to where where was next? Was that 2K Marine? Yeah, so I actually no, I I I burned out of Human Head kind of, and um, my girlfriend at the time uh, had moved out to Boston and gotten a job at Blue Fang Games. And uh, so I missed her and I was burning out at Human Head, working on Dead Man's Hand. And so I I just quit. And I actually just moved out there without a plan for getting another job. And so in retrospect, that was kind of going indie. You know, this would have been 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but what I was mainly learning that time, I I had a, a game idea that I wanted to make. And also I was teaching myself to program. So, you know, like, I think it was like a year and change that I did that. And I got a lot of education out of it that time. I also just, you know, I played a ton of games. I learned to program. I was working on my own game. I kind of hit the wall with that. And then I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I should get a job. I I should get like a, you know, a a, a day job. Uh, And so I got a job at that studio, Blue Fang Games. I worked on, I was there for less than a year. I worked on a Zoo Tycoon 2 expansion. Um... My title was not really designish. It was more just sort of like technical stringing things together and doing data work and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and around the time that, and that sort of started to fall apart for various reasons. It was just like, I don't know, there were, there were some layoffs that were not very cool how they were done. And, um, and my, my ex was involved and classic so video we were, game stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was, there was, there was, there was some drama, and so it's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to find a new, uh, uh, yeah, I'm looking for work. I want to help support my, you know, my, my ex here, you know, my then, then wife, um, and so I'm gonna, hey, this, oh my gosh, Irrational Games is hiring, and they are making uh, this spiritual sequel to System Shock Two. I'm all over that, uh, so I interviewed with them. Uh, the interview went well, and so by that November of 2005, I was working on Bioshock. That must and have been very exciting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was incredibly exciting. I was, you know, a little bit starstruck going in, and then just kind of, you know, started hammering out levels and all that kind of stuff. I learned a ton. I think I that was really that was definitely a turning point for me as a level designer, just like figuring out how to you know, really critique work and push it and, uh, talk with peers, you know, like I, I, w- I was working with some, some very talented level designers and, um, you know, and also just like learning some stuff about storytelling and 
you know, a lot of just sort of expanding, further expanding my, my definition of game design. Yeah, because Bioshock um, was one of the first games that I remember really learning or really appreciating the kind of environmental storytelling. Like, I mean, I'm certain that it yeah, did exist yeah, before yeah. that, but Bioshock and its subsequent sequels sequels have been, like, you know, they are the poster child for environmental storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I forget where that term was coined, but um, we were definitely using it. By the time we were building 2K Marin on, and working on Bio 2, we were definitely using the term in, in environmental storytelling. I think Irrational's internal term for it was mise-en-scene, okay. which is a bit of a misappropriated cinema term. Yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it all kind of means the same thing. And yeah, people had been doing it, honestly. Like, even as simple as it was, like, just the dead bodies and stuff in Doom E1M1 are a form of environmental storytelling. You know, System Shock 1 you know, really, you know, got its foot in the door, got that, that concept's foot in the door. Um, you know, I mean, so it's really just like embedding storytelling in the environment, which mm-hmm. is like, honestly, I think that that goes back almost as long as there have been game environments, really. So it's certainly not a new thing, but I think Bioshock was kind of doing it in this very visible way. It was like, you know, you know, we had committed to not having cutscenes or having as few cutscenes as possible, uh, and so we were like, yeah, this is environmental storytelling is like our the, a thing with that's that's one of our primary tools for making this game interesting. So like, let's let's lean on that as hard as we can and push it. I think it was the combo um, of the journals as well of having the the audio diaries whilst yeah. exploring the yeah. world, and you kind of you put all the pieces together as you as you see it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that that's a tradition really. Like it's that that was that was definitely standing on the shoulders of giants, but it was also, you know, I mean, it was a little bit of a halo uh effect in that uh well, not the not the real halo effect, but it was like um being one of the first games to do that in a mass market console shooter game that kind of hit perfectly in 2007 as the console shooter zeitgeist was ramping up. Yeah. I think that's kind of what put it on the map, you know. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's a product of its context and all that. And, you know, and also just the opportunity that it had to, to, to do it on to so many people. Um, so how was it then to, to move? Cause you, you were like a lead on Bioshock two, right? On one of the, the expansions. Um, yeah. So I was a designer on Bioshock one and then, uh, that shipped and I got an offer to go out to help start 2K Marin and uh, be lead level designer of Bioshock 2. So I did that. Um, and yeah, we moved out to the Bay Area and got a place in San Rafael and uh, yeah, started hiring up a team. It was, uh, I think it was eight of us from the original Bioshock team. And we were looking for cool level designers and we were looking to apply what we had learned from Bioshock 1, you know. So. Yeah, and then we built that team and we shipped Bioshock 2 and that was that was its own, you know, interesting roller coaster ride, but um yeah, like I'm really proud of what the team managed to accomplish and like the the culture that we built there. Um which is why it was a shame that it all kind of, you know, the next project that 2K assigned us to was the ill-fated XCOM the Bureau and that sort of resulted in the dissolution of the studio and of the team that that we had built. Um so brutal. Yeah. Um, well, talking of, of this kind of like you know, how how punishing sometimes the the video game industry can be, uh, ha- has there ever been a game or are there games that you go to, um, as, not as therapy necessarily, but but as a kind of 
well, I, I say it in the introduction to the show, you know, game, games that have soothed wounds. And I mention this because I, I remember very distinctly being like 16 and I'd probably just gone through a breakup and I was feeling very teenage, melodramatically depressed. Um, and it, one of the pages in the, the manual for The Longest Journey, the Ragnar Tornquist game, was mm-hmm. uh, th- this game is perfect for getting over a breakup. And I find that I, I, I oh, love wow. that idea. I love that idea. And, yeah, that, and that's yeah. always stuck with me. And, and I, I've, I've often thought that there are definitely games in my life that I've used in that fashion. So did, are there games that you would turn to or were there games that appeared that kind of helped you through kind of particularly tough <coughs> times? Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, there's no one game. Like, I don't have... I think Doom is probably the closest thing that I have to a comfort game. But it's multi faceted enough that it's not just like sort of a it's not a place of happiness and joy it's more just yeah. like it's sort of like just a way of reflecting on my own past you know it's like there's all these different windows all these different portals from different times and places into this game world and i can kind of like access those other times and and feelings from there um but i think games in general are like that for me honestly you know every time i look you know if i go back to any game if i'm not playing a new game if i'm going back to something I'm going back to a particular time in my life, you know? Yeah. And maybe maybe I don't care, like, I'm just playing something to sort of refamiliarize myself. Like, yeah, this game's level design was doing something really cool. I want to kind of, like, brush up on that. Um, maybe there's an emotional context that's sort of getting in the way of that, you know? Other times it's like, yeah, I just want the emotional context and the actual game is what's getting in the way. You know, it's like I don't – that was part of what game tourism came out of. I was like, I have these kind of fond memories of the original Unreal – uh, because, you know, it had, like, pretty trailblazing level design, you know, for its time. But I don't want to play the combat. I just want to sort of, like, simmer in that feeling of, you know, what that game was to me at the time and what it what it has sort of come to mean. Um, you know, and so I was like, okay, well, I can make a mod. I know how to do this. So I'll make a mod that removes the combat from it so that I can basically just enjoy the part that I want. Um, and it's... Sort of, that's sort of interesting in the context of memory because it's almost like a selective memory editing process. You know, you're like, absolutely, eh, you know, I'm yeah. Just kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed by what I by what I said back in high school or something. So I'm actually going to edit that, you know, uh, <laughs> or something, you know, or I'm I'm going to, you know, and and I really try not to do that. It sort of horrifies me that I'm like changing my memories as I'm remembering them because I want to remember the truth of what I was, even if it's painful. Um, oh man, give it 15 yeah. years, we'll be able to do that in real life. You know, kids who've grown <laughs> up with their contact lens, virtual reality, everything, they'll go back oh, to sure, high school right, and yeah. just delete all the all the, the people they didn't like. Yeah, you rewrite can just the your past. and be like, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm honestly having to, like, I'm doing that a lot with, uh, with autobiographical architecture. I am continuously aware as I'm building my old school, my old uh, house and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, everything that I do here is kind of editorializing and like deciding what my memory really was. And that's, that's a super weird process. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, yeah, as far as getting over a breakup specifically, uh, I don't know. It's always been something different, you know, just different times in my life. Um, I mean, when you're hurting enough, like, I don't know, at like the, at the absolute lowest points, like video games aren't really an effective salve really. Um, you know, like I, escaping doesn't, I can never really escape. I feel like from this stuff that is really, 
I don't know. I don't play games to escape that that much. I don't think. I'm I'm never getting away from everything. I'm always just going to something. Yeah, I, I always know, find that quite a dangerous sort of term. But... The escapism, like, uh, you, I don't think that's healthy. You shouldn't escape from things. It's just give you give your brain a kind of a second off for a second, but it's not. You should never. I, I, I don't know. I, I I've always found that very uncomfortable. Oh, it's just good escapist fun. It's oh, but that's gross. Why do you want to do that? That's like, you know, you may as well just take heroin or something if you want to escape. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't personally feel comfortable doing it, but I also don't want to begrudge other people their escape because honestly, like, you know, the, like the worst thing that's happened to me in my life, honestly, has has been like a divorce, and other people have experienced like really terrible, truly awful trauma. Absolutely, yeah, you know. And so, like, if people need, like, a drug or a particular form of escapism or something to heal that, or at least even just to be away from it for a while, then I, I can't really, I can't really say what's, what's appropriate for their experience, you know? Um, I don't know if, I, don't know. if I've but, made yeah, this up, um, but the, I, I don't think, I'm sure I read this or I, I heard it on, on the radio about how they're, uh, one of the ways people, uh, soldiers in the army deal with post-traumatic stress is as quickly after a horrifying event has occurred that they play games like things like tetris or, or anything that will occupy your brain to stop your brain from kind of uh solidifying that memory yeah. too much you know mm -hmm. yeah no totally yeah i mean I'm, I'm sure it does have like a real impact on the thought formation process um i think it's also yeah i mean healing trauma is Def, like yeah it's 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 a complex process and it, it's definitely not one size fits all um i think for some people it's like escaping at, at some stages of processing escaping is probably good just to like not be in that for a while but then there's also like that kind of reclaiming process where you're like yeah you want to revisit it and then reprocess it but in a way that's positive where you can take something out of it if only just the fact that you're still alive absolutely you know? yeah um, yeah. And yeah, like I, I, I was seeing a therapist for a, a, a while and a lot of that, a lot of that work that we did honestly has fed into autobiographical architecture. Honestly, it's, it's weird how, um, and so, yeah, like, and I, I don't know, I don't know how much that'll come through and like, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that like this will be, uh, a good game for other people getting over a breakup, but it'll be, you'll be hearing about how I got over a breakup. Um, so and that's the same Maybe. as like a, a sad song or a you know a, a movie or or a book. You know, it's it's the same process. It's the author dealing with it, and then through association, if nothing else, like I felt this too. That that's that's often enough, you know, to not feel like this is a unique thing happening to you. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I, it, it, if it's as good as a, a good blues song or or you know <laughs> some some sort of cathartic thing that helps you that helps you move on, then I mean, I don't know. That's that's maybe. That's an aspiration lofty enough that I don't really dare promise it or or uh, <laughs> or do much besides hope for it. But yeah, I like that idea though—a a, a new genre of blues games. That'd be that'd be fun. Well, I would, yeah. not not fun necessarily, but uh, I think people have been making games about their experience for a long time. I, I you know, I, I people people have been doing that kind of personal work. It's just not. It just hasn't been quite as visible because people don't necessarily know how to categorize it yet. But um, yeah, I think I think that'll continue to grow, and I think it's I think it's important, you know. Um, well, uh, we've we've gone down a relatively dark path, hopefully not too dark. Um, but I, 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 it would be remiss of me not to talk about uh, space space and your experience, like how that experience affected you. 
like because clearly that that didn't turn out as well as as everybody hoped but but do, do you was it still a, a worthwhile useful experience for you do you think um i certainly learned a lot from it um as a developer um yeah um i don't know i don't know how much useful things i can say about it um it like the way that that game went down and some thing some things that i can't necessarily talk about and aren't publicly known um i yeah like i'm I don't know we've, if I necessarily want to. I don't know if I necessarily want to say anything about it. No, yeah, no, we don't. We don't have to talk about it at all. Um, uh, it just uh, I wanted to bring it up just because you know it, it's a thing that if you if you sort of do a search, then that like like I, I genuinely didn't know anything about it until I did my my brief research um, before speaking to you. Sure. Yeah. And I still don't know um, an awful lot to be honest. Other than there was yeah, there yeah. was a controversy around it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It was my pitch. Uh, I got the opportunity to make it at Double Fine, um, and it. I, I, I don't. Again, I don't. I don't know how much I really want to say publicly, but but yeah, it didn't work out. Um, it didn't really get a chance to do what it do what it uh, do what it wanted to do, and. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, like the way that the way that it happened and the way that it went down, you know, I mean, that was basically um, w one thing that I really don't want is for my name is for the first thing that comes up when people search for my name to be uh, to be that game. Oh, no, it wasn't um, the first thing because, that came up. It was just something because of that. all the things. Yeah, good. Yeah, because and um, because, yeah, like the things that went wrong with that game were out of my control. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing now is because I'm tired of being at the mercy of some studio, however well-meaning, um, that ultimately, you know, like I, I can't really, you know, there's a lot of things about Bioshock that I can't really look back on and be proud about. Um, and I want to basically reclaim my identity as a creative person from that work that I did for these companies. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, space based specifically, yeah. Uh, it was it was traumatizing. Um, I, you know, a lot of my confidence as a designer went away. Uh, I'm only just now getting it back. I would say, um, autobiographical architecture is partly just sort of like trying to trying to trying to speak out with a new voice. You know, as a, as a as a designer. Yeah. Um, because you know everything else that I've done has been owned by companies that I don't, you know, have any control over what they do anymore with it. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. But then it's hard, you know, and I have to like take contract work to uh, be able to keep doing that sometimes. So, um, but yeah. Um, are you not, are you like, have you forsworn kind of, um, big sort of, you know, triple A development for, for the foreseeable future then? Are you just, you know, dedicated to, to your own work at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, AAA certainly. Like I not AAA necessarily. Maybe, I just mean like studio work and you know working yeah, for studio people. Work. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, if I could go the rest of my life without working at a game studio, I'd, I would be thrilled. Um, like I, 
yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that I don't want to work with other people, but I would much rather do so like outside of the context of the studio. I would rather find like collaborators, like, Hey, for this particular project, you're an amazing artist. You're an amazing musician. Our skills complement each other. And here's a thing that we really want to make together. I absolutely want to do that. You know, it's, so it's not about like solitude or like absolute creative autonomy for me. No, it's more just like when, when you have a studio and that has to keep the lights on, uh, then sometimes those keeping the lights on decisions are going to be contrary to what would be good for you as a human being or f- even for you professionally. Yeah. Or even, and certainly for, you know, what is the best way to make a video game or something. So, um, yeah, and I don't know, like I've had some wonderful experiences in that regard, but even the wonderful experiences kind of ended badly ultimately. <laughs> you know, like three out of the five studios that I worked at are, are gone now. <laughs> Uh, and then one of them maybe hanging on by a thread. Um, so I don't know. I like, yeah, I don't think of game studios as an inherently positive, you know, sort of outlet for the kind of work that I want to do. I think other people, they find a good studio and they settle down and they spend like a decade plus there. Um, and good for them. But I mean, also that kind of stability is extremely rare as well. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah, anytime, like, yeah, people, when people ask me enter the game industry or, you know, when people would visit a studio I would be working at and they would ask me to speak or something, you know, I would always be kind of conflicted and want to do like this sort of scared straight kind of thing where it's like, (laughs) are you really sure that you want to work at a game studio because there's other ways to make games and working at a studio? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like my, my baggage with this is probably pretty obvious. Um, and it is, yeah, informed by negative experiences I've had. And that's, it's sad because, you know, considering how many positive experiences and wonderful people that I've also worked with over the years. Um, but honestly, you know, like what's really, what that really taught me was hang on to the people in your life that are good to work with and that are just good friends and good people to have in your life. And don't hang on to studios or companies or brands or intellectual properties or, you know, stuff like that because honestly those things can be taken away from you at Absolutely. a moment's notice and, and and you know i'm certain that your your experience is 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 like considering the the landscape of, of game development is probably much more common than the opposite of everyone having a wonderful time and making brilliant games you know that that, that kind of with the amount of studios that that close and layoffs and you know it, it, it's it's probably much more common and much less spoken about than, than the opposite side you know yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like people people want, I think particularly within the indie game sphere, like the not AAA games sphere, yeah. people do want it to be like an, a, a refuge. You know, they want it to be like this happy community of positive people like making stuff. Um, and it, it can't always be that. And I think that's okay. You know, like if somebody is like very visibly suffering or, you know, something not okay has gone down, like we should be able to talk about that, you know, and we should certainly be able to like criticize each other's work and all that kind of stuff. Because I think like, that's how really wonderful, positive cultural things happen. You know, it's just like everybody kind of being real, you know, and not being more people than brand, honestly. Um, So yeah, you know, I, I, I am optimistic in the long term as far as just like, the enduring creative spirit of people, <laughs> yeah, you know, because I think people like, even if, even if the game industry were to collapse and nobody on the planet was making any money, making video games, I think people would still make them. And I think that's oh, wonderful. And, and th- um, that kind of shift as well. Like uh, uh, one of the reasons that I, I like doing the show so much is because like, even, even now, you know, with, with the internet and with, you know, so much um, relative transparency between, you know, creators and, and their creations, 
people who make games are still relatively unknown you know it is still very much a here is an, a new ea game and you know who cares about the hundreds of people that probably you know suffered yeah. uh, in in certain aspects of their life to to bring you the the latest installment of your sports franchise and things like that you know you, yeah, you, don't, you yeah. don't see the the human side of it as much i mean i'm saying that about games that's true about you know the majority of of things you know, the, the, rarely do you get access to here are this no, team true, of creators yeah. and I, and that I, made things for you. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think that I don't think the fact that it happens everywhere, like elsewhere in creative industries, makes it okay. It just oh, makes it like no. something that we kind of need to like work to inoculate society against. We need to like teach people that like yes, a human being made that smartphone. A human being made that m- many human beings made that movie. Uh, many human beings made that video game, and because um, I don't, I don't think it's particularly a big step up uh, to have something that a hundred plus people worked on and say, and just pick out one person, just because that's easy or convenient for branding purposes. Either you know, like I think, I think talking about all the sort of messy, like very social context based, you know, technicalities of how stuff gets made actually is really positive because I think I think there are some media where people where that's always where that's always been kind of built in. I think with music, it's like, okay, you have a band and it's like yeah, maybe this one person writes all the songs, but like all of those people in the band are doing something and you can kind of immediately appreciate when you hear the drums on a track, you're like, yeah, well that that's that drummer guy who's absolutely you know, yeah did, did did pretty awesome work. Um, and that, that that's that's the model that I think would be good for games to adopt is like the whole band thing. And I think there's some studios that have done a really good job exemplifying that where it's like okay this is a this is a small tight collection of different people who each have different strengths and they're all feeding into something you know and then there's also you know and there can also be voices off in the woods who are just like this one person makes things entirely by themselves and it's just amazing and singular i think you know but i'm a lot more interested in that model whereas i feel like the model that the game industry has gone with is the film model where you have one auteur at the top and then maybe like a couple of stars or something. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, even with movies, you have, you know, you have the actual actors who are in a very easy to understand kind of symbiosis with the director and the photography and the script and all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. We, we've still got a ways to go in that regard. But um, I, I think the, the last, you know, five, ten years of smaller scale games have been wonderful for that because you can you can look at it, people's individual contributions you can Absolutely, see yeah. the art and the and the code and all that stuff working together a little more clearly than if than just this gigantic blockbuster you know seamless type experience so. absolutely okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna end on something that that i'm, I'm very interested in in your thoughts on because because of your your love of of, of video games as as virtual places um, and that's virtual reality like have you had much chance to play around with that and do you think like to, to me that like uh, after our conversation we've just had that to me that seems like your perfect destination because you are literally physically inhabiting these virtual worlds yeah um so some of the contracting work that i did actually was virtual reality so i did get to use you know the bleeding edge cool stuff you know virtual reality um it is neat um i think it's sort of more just an extension of that of that sense of place and presence that games have been providing honestly as long as we've had like real time 3D sort of and spaces and even before then obviously I, I don't think the sense of presence is like restricted to to 3D no. environments but um yeah so I see it as being it does give you a different understanding um 
and I think in some cases it maybe is like there's a um you know, a, a paradigmatic change that happens when you're in a virtual space. I, I, so I think it definitely delivers a kind of richness that hasn't been seen before. But I do think it's building on something that's already, that's been around for a while. Um, I'm also kind of not optimistic that VR is going to be like a gigantic revolution in terms of like how people experience um, that stuff. I, I don't know. And maybe like, because um, yeah, I mean, I saw kind of the coolest stuff there was. Um, and yeah, I think it is neat, but I, I think it's 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 much more building on what games already do, already can do, than it is like creating a, a new format. And also just like some of the logistics of it, like needing to have the right hardware and some of the demands on that hardware. Um, I don't see it becoming like a radically democratized way. I think like, you know, Google Cardboard is sort of a dead end as far as just like the richness of that experience. You know, it's it, it would be great if, you know, you could ship virtual reality to like a billion people or something but i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon just because of some of the some of the underpinnings and you know who's involved and how it works and stuff like that it's a broadening horizon well uh, i think we've covered all sorts of brilliant stuff there jp if there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention um please do that now and also like let people know where they can find your stuff online sure um I don't know what else I've got to uh, what, what else I've got to bring up. I mean, I uh, but yeah, you can. My website is vectorpoem.com. Uh, that is also my Twitter handle, and uh, yeah, my website kind of has a hub for all my different forms of online presence. Uh, I guess it's also got a paid link to the coming soon or hopefully a page for for autobiographical architecture. And uh, yeah, and my a link to my Patreon page is on there. So if people are learning about my me and my stuff for the first time, you can support me on there. That helps me pay rent and keep doing what I'm doing for longer. Um, so yeah, that's that's my stuff. <laughs> well, thanks honestly, thanks so much. That was that was really thoroughly enjoyable. It was that was that good for you? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I hope I hope we didn't get too dark towards the end there, JP. No, I, I I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, mostly just you know, and yeah, I'm I'm trying to put as much of it as I can into my own work. So I've got to go there well, sometime. Good. <laughs> <laughs>